We are in, we're continuing our study in Samuel, 2 Samuel, this two-volume work. We're in chapter 21 this week. We're approaching the end. Believe it or not, we're almost at 60, 60 sermons. So uh, 52 is a year, so just to kind of put that in perspective, that's how long we've been in here in, in Samuel. So we're reaching the end, like I said. And these last few chapters, 21 through 24, serve as kind of like an, an epilogue, a, a conclusion to this, this narrative that we've been, that we've been uh, studying. And these are actually more like the, along the lines of the author's concluding remo- remarks. Um, it's re- really a reflection looking back at what has been taking place in history, in this important time in their history at, in, in Israel. Um, how we see the establishment of God's kingdom under God's anointed one. And as we learn, that person has been David. We've seen that first in Saul, but now exclusively in David, who was a man for God's own heart, the man that God had chose to lead his people. But as we're going to see, starting in this chapter and moving forward through the rest of the end of this study, is that the authors arranged this epilogue in a very different way than we've seen previously. Before, it's been all chronological for the most part. We've seen uh, things transpire over the course of Saul's reign and, and throughout, first with the establishment of, of God's prophet Samuel, through Saul's reign, through David's reign. But now we're going to see that instead of seeing a chronological explanation of the final days of David's kingdom, we're now instead going to see a reflection on an interpretation, really, of the kingdom of God as it was administered under David's, uh, under David's reign, which, again, God's anointed one. So keep that in mind as we read this text, and as you're reading it on your own, as we're continuing this study, um, that they're not going to be chronological, but at the same time, it's not gonna, these are not just random stories put together in some random fashion. And that's a good rule of thumb for all of us as we're reading God's Word as a whole, as we're studying the Scriptures on our own and reading and meditating on it, is not only are we looking to see how God is communicating to us, disclosing Himself and, and about our, our own selves as well, in Scripture, uh, in the context of the Scripture, but also in the arrangement, and maybe even in the structure of, of how the author, the human author, but obviously the, uh, the, the divine author, God Himself, what He's intending to communicate to us in the arrangement, the structure of the text. And as we're going to see in this, this text this morning, that it's, it's being arranged, and the epilogue itself is being arranged in a way that it's very thematic. So in our case, chapter 21 is, is going to be part of this collection of different tales, different lists and psalms, and, and, and actually David's final words. And they're all going to give us an important insight in how we ought to understand the kingdom of God. And just so happens that our text this morning has actually two distinct sections. Remember, the original didn't have, uh, didn't have verses and, and chapters. but So we're going to see them, two different parts, two different sections this morning. That's why I've, I've uh, entitled this, Seven Sons and, and Four Giants. And what we're going to do this morning is something a little bit different than we normally do. Because they're not chronological, uh, we're going to actually treat them uh, in reverse order. So I'm, I'm going to take a look first at the second section on the giants first, and then we'll, then we'll switch back to verses 1 through 14, which is going to be the primary focus of our study this morning. But, but let's first let's take the time to read um, this passage uh, from the Word of God here. First Samuel, or Second Samuel chapter 21. Starting in verse 1 to the end. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, 
there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the, the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it to put, for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because the oath of the Lord was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani, not the Armani exchange, but Armani or maybe Armoni, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzali, the Mahalathite. And he gave them in the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the final days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of, of Bethshan, where the Philistines hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of all those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all the king commanded, and after that... God responded to the plea of the land. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was of the descendants of the giants. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These, were four, these, were, these four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So, as I said, we're going to treat these in reverse order. We're going to go first at the, uh, look at the, these four fierce giants, 
Um, and then we're going to move into the next part, um, the, the first part of this chapter. Three years of famine, and then we'll see seven saw-eyed sons, and then finally one grieving mother. So let's first dive into the second passage here, the four fierce giants, starting in verse 15. Like I said, we won't spend a lot of time here, but what I want to point out is that this is essentially a record of the four battles that took place during David's reign. Again, it's not chronological, so it's not going to be happening near the end. It's probably peppered throughout his, his reign. And what each of these, these accounts give us is uh, that they have in common is that there was a mighty man of David, David's, one of David's mighty men, who slays a giant, uh, a Philistine giant. And it's essentially this list, uh, again, if you, if, you, if you could call it, of giant slayers who was led by the original giant slayer, David himself, when he took down Goliath, and as we saw in First, first Samuel chapter 17. So first we see Abishai, who's not uh, unknown to us. He's Joab's brother, and he kills Ishbi Benab and saves David's life, actually. Um, after, David, after that, David's told he's no longer welcome on the battlefield, right? Because uh, lest um, the lamp of Israel go out, it was too risky, too risky for Israel to lose their anointed king. Then we see Sibachai, who's a Hushathite. He kills Saph at Gob. Then there's another battle at Gob, that we see. And Elhanan is, uh, is the one who kills Goliath the Gittite who's not to be confused with uh, the other Goliath, the Gittite that David killed. Uh, and then we see, lastly, that Jonathan, the son of Shimei, again, Jonathan here is not the same Jonathan that was friends with David, that was the son of Saul. And this is also not Shimei, the one who had earlier cursed David um, in chapter 16. And so we see this Jonathan, son of Shimei, kills an unnamed giant who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. In the apocryphal book, The Apprentice Bride, this, this guy's name is not Jonathan, but Inigo Montoya. So that's, that's where that comes into play. <clears throat> so, given that, that account, which seems like it's uh, just a list of these different battles in the, in the warrior kings and those warrior giant slayers, what can we conclude from this? I mean, that's the real question is, what can we really learn from this? What does this teach us about the kingdom of God, especially as it was administered under David's reign? Well, first, it's a, the first thing we notice is I think it's, it's a really interesting bookend, as we see uh, in David's role as a public warrior for Israel against the Philistines. We see first that he was this public warrior when he took down Goliath, and now at the end of his, his reign here, at least at the conclusion of this book that talks about his reign, we see now the Philistines again mentioned, and we see that, um, that it's a nice bookend for, for David's warrior status. But I think the, the author wants to show us a little bit even more than that. I think it's, it's meant to show us that although David's reign was imperfect, it still shows one aspect of the kingdom of God, that it is its supremacy over all other kingdoms. Right? The kingdom of God is a very real kingdom. It's got a very real king, and it battles very real enemies. And I think what we're seeing here is that ultimately nothing can withstand its force. No power, however mighty it might be, even an army of giants can't stand a chance against God's kingdom and against his anointed one, his anointed king. And I think it's also then also pointing this to that greater king, the ultimate king, the one who's the true lamp of Israel, who would never grow weary the way that David grew weary in battle. 
and that it's Jesus Christ, and, and that when he returns, he is going to, as the author of Hebrews says, make his enemies a footstool. And I think there might be some other, other ways this points to the kingdom of God as well, and, and I, I don't have time this morning to, to flesh those all out, so I encourage you to do that in your community groups over the course of this next week or so. But, but I just wanted to mention that, and that, it's, it, that it is important, even though it seems like it's not initially. Um, it's there for a purpose. So talk about that in, in your community groups. But now I want, I want to jump into chapter 21, and we're going to go look at verses 1 through 14. And let me just state the obvious up front as we go into the three years of famine as our first point here, is that it's, it's, a very, it's not a very easy chapter. It's, it's, it's not a very happy chapter. It's filled with a lot of suffering, with a lot of heartache, and if there was any passage that would be good to skip over and to avoid, um, this would be one of those. But because we're committed to, to teaching the full counsel of God here at King's Chapel and that we believe that all Scripture is given and it's, breathed, it's a breathe-out Word of God, that because that it is that very Word of God, it's authoritative, right? It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, for the training in righteousness, as Paul says to Timothy, so that... All of us may be equipped for every good work. So, although this looks like it's a very difficult passage, and it is, it's a very bloody passage, a very painful passage to read, try reading it and studying it for an entire week. But I think it's meant to show us that it's not gratuitous. There's something in this passage that God wants to teach us this morning. So with that said, let's, let's jump in and, and into the opening of, this, of these verses. We see that it opens with a famine in Israel. It's a three-year-long famine. In fact, the, the, the author here tells us that it happened year after year just to, to underscore the fact that it's, it's not normative. There were droughts that happened in Israel at that time. It was not uncommon in that area of the world. It's still not uncommon in that area of the world. But it's happened for three years now. And we're not told exactly... Uh, by the author, what toll it's taken on the land, on the people. But we've got to, I don't think it'd be unreasonable to think that there were probably many people who had died over the course of these three years for lack of food and water. So, so there's, a lot, there's immense suffering on the land. And then in the midst of this famine, we see right from verse 1, David doing something we haven't seen him do in a long time as we've been studying him. Again, it's not chronological, this, did, this wasn't at the end of his reign. This is probably somewhere near the beginning. It could have even been uh, before his adultery with Bathsheba. But we, we see him doing something here. He hasn't done it in a long time. He's seeking the face of God, as it says. David sought the face of God. And we see that here, because David is the anointed of God, he was acutely aware of the fact that, that God was the one who was the, the ultimate cause for this climate change that was going on in the land. In all likelihood, he was, he was interpreting this, 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 this happenings as famine, as a divine curse for, for the corporate disobedience, that is just as it was laid out in the law in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26 tells us, And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their, yield their fruit. That's a, one of the divine curses that God said would have come upon Israel for their disobedience and their violation of the covenant with Him. And notice how that's also, uh, interestingly, an, an amplification, right, of the original curse on the land that came in Genesis chapter 3, 
with, David, with, um, uh, with Adam and Eve's disobedience. So we see David doing the right thing here. He, he's, he's appealing to God. The text says that he sought the face of the Lord. And I think there's a couple things that we, we, can, we can learn from that. There's two things I want to point out about what that, just that, in that phrase itself means. That first of all, we see that, that Lord is, is all capitalized here. And I think that is designating that David is seeking the, the God of Israel, the one who disclosed himself as Yahweh, the, the one who disclosed himself first to Moses in the burning bush. He's using the covenant name of God here as he's coming before God. He's coming before the Lord. So it's not just a title of God. This is the name of God that he's using here as he's coming before the Lord. And what we see also happening here is in, in this phrase, it was typically used to seek a Lord or seek somebody would be, would be to for somebody to seek visitation or to have counsel with a, a dignitary or with a, with a royal person, with, with a king. So I think it's interesting that we see David himself, the king of Israel, is humbling himself before the greater king. Right? He, he's a man that is in authority, but he also understands the fact that he is one that's under authority, under God's authority. And we see that God, Yahweh, the name that, that David's used, mercifully responds to David's request. And I think that's, that's something that we could easily skip over. We could, we could miss that very easily if we're reading and not paying a close attention. That God extends mercy in the very beginning of this. Even as the, the famine is going on in Israel, He doesn't remain silent to David's pleas. He, he speaks, He responds, He answers David's plea for clarity. He reveals that the famine is what he thought it probably was, that it was punishment, but, but not for, for what David knew it to be. It was for Saul's genocide on the Gibeonite people. God reveals here that he says that there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So I think what we can see in this passage, and as we look back at what has come previously, is that, all the while we've been seeing the consequences of David's sin and his adultery with Bathsheba and how it was played out in his family and the consequences and, and the punishment in, in his family, the judgment of the Lord on, in his own house, but also over all of Israel. But now we're seeing he's being haunted by somebody else's sin, not his own. He's being, being confronted with, with Saul's sins, the previous administration. And it's not just the consequences that he and all of Israel suffering, it's actually, the Lord is revealing that he, David's house, and all of Israel, is actually being implicated by Saul's sin. And what was, what was the sin that, he, that he's pointing out here? Well, the, the, the narrator here actually is, gives a little brief history lesson on what was going on, gives a little backstory as to what was happening. At some point during Saul's reign, we don't know when, the scripture doesn't, doesn't have reference to this campaign, but Saul made it his aim to annihilate the Gibeonite people. And these were people that Israel had formerly been in a peace agreement with. They had, they had made an oath, an agreement, that they, would not, that they would protect these people, the Gibeonites. And then we're told that it was made, the reason why, the, motiv, the motivation for Saul's violation of this covenant was that it was for the zeal of the people of Israel and Judah. That's, we see that in verse 2. So what we're learning is that Saul had this misguided 
passion for his people, this, this, this kind of nationalistic fervor for, for Israel that, that caused him to, to enact this campaign of genocide against a people that Israel had centuries earlier had made a peace agreement with. They had promised to protect by an oath. To actually understand a little bit more of what's going on here, we, we, we have to look back at Joshua chapter 9. That gives us a little bit more context of what this peace treaty was. The, the Gibeonites were the, were the original inhabitants of the land. Uh, they were, it says here that they were a remnant of the Amorites. Now Amorites here uh, is referring to the general name for the people that lived in the land at the time. The Can- another way of referring to them would be the Canaanites. So while Amorites could, could, all, could be specific to a group of people, in this case it's being used as a general term, like Canaanite was, those who lived in, 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 the, in the land before Israel came into the land. And as that descendant of, of people, as the Canaanites, as these Amorites, and the original inhabitants of this land in Canaan, they were part of God's Canaanite ban that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 20, where God commanded his people, as they go into the land, that they were going to be the ones who were to destroy the, all these people as judgment for their wickedness against God. And as we read in, in Joshua chapter 9, these Gibeonites... They knew what was going on. They, had, they kind of saw the, the, the writing on the wall. They had heard about what was going on with, with this Israelite uh, nation and with their God. So rather than go up to war against them after, after they've already just come out of Jericho and Ai and destroyed those people, they decide to go a different route. Rather than coming up in war against them, they decide they're going to use a little bit of a different method. They're going to use deception as a way of getting out of uh, of, of, of saving themselves, of surviving what's probably coming their way. So what they did is interesting. They, they go to great lengths to cover up who they really are, but they dress in rags. They, they, uh, they, they, um, they use old wineskins. They, they, um, uh, they saddle their donkeys with, with old cloth that's, that's falling apart. They even actually take moldy food as a way of, of, of proving the fact that they've come long distances, and, and they, they pack that away with them. And then, and then what they do is they, they approach Israel, they approach Joshua and all of Israel, their camp at Gilgal, which has been, as we've seen, is a very interesting and important place. But they, they go to Gilgal, they approach Joshua, and the Israelite forces that are camping there, and they, they weave this very convincing story. They convince Joshua and the leaders of Israel that they are these foreigners from a very, very distant land, and, and to prove it, look at what we're wearing. Look at, look at the moldy food. This was fresh when we left our homes, and now it's all moldied, molded over. And, and, and we've heard great things about you, they said. And, and, and because of all the mighty deeds that we've seen happening uh, by your God and by, and by your military conquests, we want to come and be servants of yours. We want your protection. Can you make a peace treaty with us? And as we read in, in, in that that, uh, that the account there in Joshua chapter 9, we see that Joshua and all of them fall for, for this, this, this tale, hook, line, and sinker. And, and, and what they do is they, they make this covenant of peace with the Gibeonites. And what we see pointed out in, in chapter uh, 9, verse 20 of that, of that chapter, we see that it was because they did not ask the counsel of the Lord and they were duped into making this covenant with the Gibeonites. So by the time Joshua and the leaders had found out about this, this, the, the, the true reality of who these people were, the Gibeonites were, that they were only 25 miles away from where they were living, they had no other recourse, but they, they had to honor their treaty now because they 
in order to honor their God, honor the name of their Lord, to not break the third commandment, to, to use the, names, the name of the Lord in vain, they had to keep this covenant now. Otherwise, they would be breaking that, that commandment. So the Gibeonites, at the same time, though, they didn't go, go away unscathed. They, they were brought into Israel and they were protected, but they were also relegated now to serve as Israel's servants, that they were going to be the ones who would cut wood and they would draw water for Israel and they would actually do this for the house of God. But the question is, okay, so they made a covenant, but, but how serious was this covenant really? I mean, were, were, were they really need, did they really need to honor this covenant? Well, we see Joshua and, and the elders there, if you look back at that chapter once again, it'll tell, it, it shows us that they were afraid that if they did not keep this covenant, this oath, if they broke or violated this covenant, they would be under the wrath of God. So they, they were very fearful about breaking that covenant. So now taking that whole context, if you fast forward these centuries and centuries later, Saul now had, had, had determined on his own that now this covenant, this, this oath, this loyalty to the Gibeonites was, no, was either uh, it was outdated or maybe it was unnecessary now for some reason. Or, more likely, he probably thought that violating this, this covenant with them was, was, was worth doing. It was okay to do that because it, if it benefited Israel. Because, his, again, his zeal was for the people of Israel, as it says. But, but I think what Saul failed to realize and what we can learn from this is that proper zeal for God's people must first be, and foremost be informed in and rooted in a zeal for God himself a love for God himself and for God's law. And now even after Saul's death, Israel now is experiencing exactly what Joshua and all the elders at the time were afraid would happen if they violated this covenant, that the wrath of God would be upon them. And so now that's exactly what's happening and it falls on David as the anointed one, as the, as the leader of Israel to act on behalf of the nation to, to, to resolve the issue that we're seeing uh, playing out here in this chapter. And that brings us to the next part of our, uh, of our study this morning, which is the seven Saul-eyed sons. We see that David's going to make an effort now to remove the wrath of God, and, and, and he's going to try to do that by righting the wrong that had been done to the Gibeonites. And in order to do that, what he does is he calls a summit. He gets together with the Gibeonites, and, he, and in, do, in so doing, he's, he's fulfilling his role as the judge of Israel as the one who's going to make atonement for this transgression. And he asked them, What should I do for you? And how should I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? I think that's an unmistakable, if you're looking close enough, that's an unmistakable reference to the Abrahamic covenant, which was that God promised Israel, promised Abraham and all of Israel, that he would bless those who bless you, and and those who dishonor you, I will curse, and I will... And I will, in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. It's in Genesis chapter 12. So although these Gibeonites were not, were not, these Gibeonites were not Israelites, they, they seem to know God's law. They've been living there long enough for, for, for centuries at this point, and they had served to actually provide the materials for the, the house of the Lord they knew the law. They knew that they, that they were, as aliens and foreigners living in Israel, they had the, the protection as, as, as those foreigners, as, as the law stated and made, and made uh, very plain. And they realized 
knowing the law that that money was not going to do it, that there, this was not going to be a, that money itself, silver and gold, was not going to be a proper recompense for the murders that Saul had unleashed on the Gibeonites. They realized that the, that as the law points out, that the punishment must fit the crime. That's what eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth means. I think that's sometimes very misunderstood. It's not that's not revenge. That is simply meaning that the punishment should fit the crime. And when it comes to murder, when it comes to taking of a human life, the, the law of God is very clear on what, that, what, what the recompense is for that. That murder of another human being requires the bloodshed of the perpetrator. It's in Numbers 35. It's very obvious. So we ask the question, though, you could ask, why, well, why that is that the case? And I think it's, it's a good reminder for us today that human life is precious to God. And that was, that was made plain by God to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. He says, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. As, as creatures who are made in the image of God and the likeness of God, that we have, we have by God, been in, we now have inherent dignity and we have value in ourselves because God has made us, because He's made us in His very image. Human life is, is precious to God and therefore it demands our highest respect as well. Whether it's the born or the unborn, whether it's old or young, male or female, no matter what the ethnicity, all life is precious to God because God greatly values life, so too should we value human life. That's important to realize in our culture of death that's going on all around us right now. But that's why the law required capital punishment for murder, because there's, there's nothing as valuable as, as a human life, and the only thing that comes close to it is another human life. So we see Saul's sin was especially heinous, because it wasn't just a murder of, of, of one person, but it was a slaughter of many lives. It was a genocide. It was a bloody massacre, and God would not... Overlook it. And that also teaches us that God does not overlook sin. That righteousness and holiness and justice being a very part of His nature, that, that, that's coming out in this text. It's a reminder of us in this text of His holiness, as we just sang about. And as we learn from our text, also, that God's judgment comes in, in the form that He chooses and in his own timing as well. Because we could, we could get bogged down in asking ourselves as we're looking at this text, why did God wait to afflict the land until David was reigning as king? Why didn't he take it out on Saul when Saul was still alive? Why didn't he demand atonement from Saul, the perpetrator of this horrible campaign of violence and murder? And the answer to that question is really, we, we don't really know for sure. We don't, we don't, the text doesn't tell us that. But what we do know is that God had not forgotten about it. And their text is proof of that this morning. And that's a good reminder for us today as well, but that as we look at our, our sin-laden landscape that's, that's going on around us, and sometimes it seems chaotic, there's a longing in all of us that, that as we're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom of God, when, when Jesus will finally return, when He will set all things right, and perfect justice will finally be established here on earth. All things we've sorted out. And God's people, we should realize, have been anticipating His coming 
for centuries, for millennia. Many have been, have been born in, in that anticipation, have died in that anticipation, and yet still Jesus has not come back yet. And from our perspective, it, it can appear that God has, has, is, is tarrying, that, that, that he's forgotten somehow, or that he, maybe he doesn't care about the painful realities of sin that we are dealing with day in and day out. But Peter tells us, reminds us, the Apostle Peter in his, his first letter, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So until we reach our last breath, God is calling all people everywhere to repentance in the gospel. He's calling all people everywhere to, to confess their sins, to, to repent, that is to turn away from their sins, their lifestyle of sin, and to then instead cling to Christ, throw themselves upon His mercy, the mercy and grace of God that is extended to us in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. That is His slowness, the slowness of, it, of his eternal judgment is his patience. But someday it will end. Peter goes on saying the very next verse, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are all done in them will be exposed. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which Righteousness dwells. Do you have that hope this morning? Can, can you say that it's truly the longing of your heart for God's perfect justice to come back to earth where it will reign steadfast and unmovable? Or does it frighten you to know of Christ's return and His judgment that will be unleashed because you know of the awareness or you're aware of the sin in your life. In that case, I would say, and I would appeal to you to, to, to throw yourselves upon the mercy of God, to, to now remember His patience is calling you to repentance and to believing in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done in your place. And getting back to our text this morning, Saul, as we've seen, is, is long dead. But his sin is, is still plaguing the land even well after his death. And an atonement must be made for Saul, who, is, who I think is interesting that the Gibeonites, and I think in, in, in tongue-in-cheek, call him the chosen of the Lord, the one who had violated the covenant. And Gibeonites knew that it was not within their rights to, to uh, administer capital punishment as well. That had to come from Israel and Israel's leader. It was left for their king to do that. And so they, they requested that seven of Saul's sons be killed. But not only that they be killed, but that their bodies be given over to them so they can then hang them publicly in Saul's hometown of Gibeah. I think it's really interesting too, if you look at what they're proposing, what they're requesting from David, because if you look back at Joshua chapter 9 and then in, in, the, in the next the next chapter, chapter 10, we see that it was after they had made this peace agreement with Israel that five of the neighboring nations are going to come after the Gibeonites because they've made this peace treaty with Israel. And all five of these armies are going to be obliterated by 
Joshua and the people of Israel because God's hand was with them. That was actually the battles where the sun stood still for longer than a day. And after that had happened, all five of the kings that remained who had hidden themselves in, in, in caves were taken out and they were killed and, they, and then they were publicly hanged on a tree for everybody to see. I think that just, that's interesting given, given what they're requesting here from, from David. But what, anyway, David agrees to it and he gives the Gibeonites two sons of Rizba, which is Saul's concubine. One is Armani or Armoni. The other one is Mephibosheth. Not the same Mephibosheth that we've that we've just uh, we're about to hear about. The one who David had uh, conf- had given his has said his his perfect and loving uh, kindness to, and uh, that was un- part of the agreement that he had with his, his father Jonathan. So not that Mephibosheth, but another Mephibosheth. And then he asks, uh, and then he grants them also five of Saul's grandsons that we see that are not named in this passage. But going back to Mephibosheth, it's interesting here though that the author make sure to tell us that it's not that Mephibosheth. And then he also reminds us that David is going to protect Mephibosheth, the one that he had promised to show his kindness to. And I think this is interesting because I th- the narrator here is also pointing out, I think is, is making it very clear, he's putting uh, the, sh- the stark contrast between Saul himself, who was the covenant breaker, the violator of the covenant, and David, who was the covenant keeper. He's putting it that, that right in front of our eyes so that we can see that, that sharp distinction between the two men. We see David didn't, didn't abandon his loving kindness, his hesed, his steadfast love toward Mephibosheth, but instead Mephibosheth is now safe because of David's steadfast love. David's going to honor his covenant with Jonathan that he had made, and extended to Mephibosheth. It didn't matter how many years had transpired since that happened. It didn't matter what the current circumstances were in Israel at the time. And I think in this way, he's pointing out once again, I think the author wants to see this as, as we look through all of Scripture, that it's pointing to the consummate covenant keeper and covenant maker, which is God himself. God relates to his people, communicates to his people through his word, through his laws, through his promises and covenants. And unlike Saul or any other imperfect human being, including David himself, as we've seen, that he was very imperfect, like, us all, like all of us are, his promises are certain, unlike mere human beings, because they are bound by his steadfast love. They guarantee that he will remain faithful. He's appealing to his, his very nature, which he cannot act in contradiction to. And that is going to also include his promise in the law, that God's promise to his people that when sin happens among his people, that proper atonement will be, can be made, that the gift of atonement has been given by God himself. So the question is, was this, however, proper atonement for Saul's actions? That's the big question. And that's where commentators divide. Some are not sure. Some, some seem to think that the, that the Gibeonites were, were actually a little bit bloodthirsty, that, that their request was a little excessive because um, they were asking uh, for, for Saul's whole family to be annihilated and, and, and that it was vengeance that was on their minds and that, and that in the same way that Saul had intended to destroy them, annihilate them as a people, now they were going to get back by annihilating him and his family and his descendants that came after him. And if you think about it, 
It was also the Gibeonites then here who are the ones who are requesting this particular mode of, 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 of atonement. It doesn't say explicitly that God himself is the one who said that this is what they should be offered. But after looking this over and studying this a little bit, I, I'm not convinced that that interpretation is correct and for two reasons. One, it's David who is first approaching the Gibeonites. It's not the other way around. They're not... In fact, we see that the Gibeonites had, had kept their peace this entire time. They had not come to David about this because of what Saul had done. Secondly, I think what is interesting here is that God himself is the one who reveals to David that it, the blood guilt was on Saul himself, but also on his house. So it's not only just on Saul, but it's on his entire house. And it could be the fact maybe that it was these sons who had joined him in his, in his crusade of genocide. These were, these were people, these Gibeonites were living in, in land that was given to the Benjaminites. He was a Benjaminite. His whole clan was, Saul's clan was. And so maybe they were, they were also involved in this bloodshed. It, or it could also be the fact that, that Saul, who was the chosen of God, as the Gibeonites reminded David, as the one that was chosen of, of God, his acts were so horrific, so atrocious, that it warranted this degree of punishment. Could be one of those, could be something else. We're not, we're not entirely sure. The text doesn't tell us explicitly what that is. But I think what is made perfectly crystal clear in this text is that we're seeing the corrosive nature of sin. We're seeing that, that sin hurts, it kills, it divides, it breeds further sin. And it also shows us that, that just handling or dealing with sin itself is a bl- very bloody affair as well. And that it's an affront to our, our sensibilities. But not only just an affront to our sensibilities, especially 2,000 years removed or more, many more years removed, but it's also an affront to God's holiness as well, to God Himself. And to, to say that, God's, that sin is an, is an offense to God, I think, is just uh, is an understatement because it says, text says here and everywhere, it shows us that God hates sin, that he detests sin. I'm using the word hate here about sin. Did you get that? That's from, uh, okay. As good as it gets, Melvin, okay. Go see that, it's a good movie. But he's, he's using the word hate here about sin. That David understands that while the Gibeonites needed recompense for Saul's sin, ultimately atonement had to be made against what was necessary to satisfy God's wrath itself. Not just the, the Gibeonites, but God's righteous indignation, which had been manifested, right, in this three-year famine. And that's exactly what atonement means. It's, it's both propitiatory and expiatory. Uh, and those are, are two words that are important to understand. Maybe not the words themselves, but just what they are pointing to and how they both are two sides of the same coin as they re- refer to atonement. That propitiation means that it's, it's, a, it's a reference to appeasing the wrath of the one who is taken advantage of, who is offended, who is victimized. And expiation, which is the other side of the coin, is the removal of the guilt through some sort of payment or some sort of penalty. But both sides, again, are, are, both are, are part of the, are the uh, two sides of the same coin, and they're in, in tr- intrinsically connected. They, they can't be separated. They're, they're, they're both necessary for the removal and forgiveness of sins. And that's what we're seeing is it's trans, 
transpiring here in this passage, as we see happening, is that, that these seven sons are offered as a sacrifice in place of Saul and all of Israel. And that their death was the payment, their death was the penalty for the sin in order to placate the angry God. Not angry just for the sake of being angry, but for the fact that sin had been committed and that it was offensive to him. And their hanging bodies then, as we see, are, are actually testimony to this very real sense in which there's this harsh reality of the ugliness and the stench and of the bloodiness of, of sin, but also because the bloodiness and the, uh, the messiness that's, re, that's required to mitigate the wrath of God. His just wrath, His, his, his uh, righteous wrath and His righteous indignation. And that brings us to our, our uh, last point here this morning as we're looking now to a grieving mother. And if looking at these bloody corpses hanging on a tree was not enough, now we get the glimpse into the mother's heartache as she sees her sons here hanging on a tree. Rizbo was one of, is he one of Saul's concubines. She's first mentioned back in chapter 3, 2 Samuel chapter 3, when after Saul's death, Abner was said to have slept with, with uh, Saul's concubine here, which is Rizbah, and then after that, there, this, this, this debate, this, this argument transpires between Saul and Ish, uh, I'm sorry, between um, Abner and Ishbosheth, who was the one who was supposed to take over Saul's kingdom, as we know differently. David was the anointed one chosen by God, not, not Ishbosheth, but this, this, agree, this disagreement happens, and Abner ends up leaving Ishbosheth's side and, and pursuing David's cause, but then we see Joab goes and kills him. Anyway, Rizbah is now seen here grieving the loss of her two sons here, but more than that, she's, she's attaching herself to all seven of these corpses, all seven of the, the bodies of these, of these sons, these descendants of Saul, and she's protecting them from birds during the day and wild beasts at night so they wouldn't defile the bodies. The text tells us that she actually does this. She does this, this type of mourning from the time they are hanged, which it says in the text is the beginning of the barley harvest, which would probably be around April sometime. And it says all the way until the next rainfall. Some commentators said that that could be as long as October. From April to October she's doing this. We don't know that for sure. We don't know how long it was before the rain Came, came down from heaven where God showed His mercy and grace on the land. But we do know it was long enough for, for David to have traveled to collect the bones of, of Saul and his other sons who were in uh, Jabesh Gilead and then to also go and collect these bones and then travel all the way to Zelah where they were, their bodies were buried, their bones were, were buried. So it had to have been an extended period of time that she's mourning this way. As you're looking at the text, it's heart-wrenching, this account, as we look at this mother who's mourning for her sons, and she's kneeling on the slath cloth that's laid out on stone, on top of a rock, it says, and she's caring for the bodies, day in and day out, making sure that nothing happens to them, probably to keep their bodies from being defiled, because as the law would say that bodies should be pulled down the same day, but they are not, and instead of being Allowing them to be filed by, by animals, she's, she's protecting them. And as I was reading this, I was reminded of 
Jer- have you, if anybody's seen that movie, Jeremiah Johnson, with Robert Redford back in the, from the 70s. And, and he's a mountain man. He's gone out into the mountains to, to make his way of life. And he comes across this woman, as, and he's traveling. And he finds her with, with, their, with, their, with their children. And, and she's, she's coddling them. Um, and she's, she's wrapping them in, 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 in blankets. She's putting coats on them. And as mo- every mother does, she's telling them, put your coats on so you don't, you don't catch cold. She's caring for these, 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 these children. And as he gets closer, and he, as he's hearing these things, then he's, then he's starting to see the, her bloodstained hands. He starts to see the bloodstained foreheads of these children and, and, and that, they're, that they're, they're dead. They're just as unresponsive as, as, as a porcelain doll that they had been murdered by, by Indians before this. And this mother is, is just caring for her children, even in death, not wanting to believe that they're gone. And, he, and, and Jeremiah, just, he, he does this merciful act by, by burying these children. And then he, he watches as this, this woman, day after day, is kneeling before, before, their, uh, before their graves and wailing and crying and won't be consoled and is, is not sleeping and is not eating day after day. And such is, is a mother's love for her children. And that should move our hearts as we're looking at this passage and, and grieving with her. Certainly move David's heart, as we see here. It's going it's to move him to do, something that, to, to, to do something that had been left undone for too long. He's, he's now going to, to bury Saul and his sons at Kish. And remember, if, you, if we look back at 1 Samuel chapter 31, when Saul dies on uh, the mountain of Gilboa, the hand of the Philistines, the Philistines then take his body, take the, the bodies of his son Jonathan and his, and his three other sons, and they, they hang them in the public square for everybody to see. And now David, I think, is remembering that. He's recalling that what had happened there. And now he's, he's going and he's, he's collecting the bones of Saul, his sons, and these, these other seven descendants of his, and in so doing, I, I think he's, he's referencing, he's, he's showing the, and underscoring maybe the, the guilt and God's judgment that was upon Saul and his house and that, they had, and that, that their, their deaths were now making proper atonement for his sin. But I think also what's happening here is that David's showing compassion. I think he's, he's, he's moved by compassion of this, of this woman of this mother, and he's moved to compassion in the same way that, that he honored Jabesh, the men of Jabesh Gilead for their compassion on, on Saul as well by taking those bodies down and, and bearing them under the tamarisk tree. And the text tells us after this is, David has done this, God then responds to the, pre, to the plea of the land. God has accepted the atonement. He's lifting the curse now, and he's now blessing Israel with rain, and that's where, that's where the story ends. Looking back, <clears throat> this difficult text, it's, it's a sobering reminder again, just again of this, the far-reaching effects of sin. But I think we should also remember that, that just as it began with God's mercy, when he answered David's prayer for clarity, it also ends with God's mercy and His grace. And that these rains were that indication of his 
the fact that justice had been served, that, that his wrath was placated, that, that his blessed presence had now returned to the land of Israel. But we, have, but we now today have a greater manifestation, a greater token of the grace and the love of God that that's now has rained down, has poured on us, and that is the, the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that, that Adam, that his rebellion has made rebels of all of us. Romans chapter 5 states that, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Paul's pointing to Adam. It's an unmistakable reference to Adam, in that he's saying that the, that the sin has caused a fundamental rift in humanity's relationship with God, and it's brought cursing also on the land, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3. And 2 Samuel chapter 21, as we've been looking at this morning, I think is an illustration of that greater reality. It's a, it's a microcosm of that truth that Saul's violation of the covenant and his genocide on the Gibeonites brought blood guilt upon him, upon his house, and on all of Israel, on the whole nation of Israel. And not just guilt, but has also brought the wrath of the holy God and on, on them and on his, and his righteous judgment was right behind it. And just as Israel needed somebody to act as the good judge, as the arbitrator for the case, so does all of humanity. But the problem is, there's no just negotiator. There's no one who can, is capable of negotiating peace between us and God. Every human person is stained by sin and is in perpetual rebellion, willful rebellion against the Creator. No one seeks peace with God. There is no one righteous. There is no one that seeks God. There is no one concerned with defending the glory of God except God himself who is the holy and righteous judge. And because that he is the holy and righteous judge, the sentence of eternal death is upon all of us and it remains on all of us. It's, only, it's the only punishment that fits the crime. But then we see, as we're reminded of the mercy of God, that he's done something that's unthinkable, that's amazing, that he's offered atonement on our behalf, that he's offered us peace, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who suffered the atrocities of the cross for us in our place, the sinless Son of God, the sinless Son of God, served as both our mediator, the one that's going to stand in our place as the high priest, and he's also the sacrifice that the high priest offers The writer of Hebrews says it this way, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Amazingly, in one event, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, he shouldered our condemnation, he satisfied God's wrath, and he exchanged our guilt with his righteousness. And then afterwards, as we just read, he sat at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God, which should not be forgotten that 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 is an acceptance of his atoning work. That by doing that, his sacrifice was accepted by God. And that Jesus' penal substitutionary atonement, which is a theological term which is important to understand, that His penal substitutionary work appeased the wrath of God, removed the guilt of our sins, and it reconciles us to God. 
It's the God who pledges to us his said that we just read about again, his steadfast love on all those who will place their faith in Christ. So the question that remains at the end is, do you know Jesus in that way? Have you, have you repented of sin? Have you taken cover under his blood and on his eternal work as the one who has offered the sufficient once-for-all sacrifice? And if not, then I, 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 I'm pleading with you this morning and appealing to you that you would come to Jesus, that you would mourn your sin, that you would come before him, and that you would offer yourself and surrender yourself to Jesus Christ and on his work. That you would place your faith and trust in what he has already done, not in doing anything that you have done on your own that you could ever do. And if you're a follower of Christ this morning, I would ask, are you serving, are you serving the king? Are you serving in his kingdom? And are you longing for his return? Or have you shifted your focus somehow from, and placed your, your, your hopes on the world that's around you? If you have, then I'm asking you and pleading with you to, to turn back to Jesus, to remember that he is the one who loved you and he gave himself for you, and that I'm asking you to remember to, that we are called to, and that we have the privilege of delighting in him and resting in his has said, in his, his loving, steadfast love for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. It, uh, it pulls no punches when it tells us the reality of our sins, when it shows us what sin, what happens because of sin and, and, and how even the penalty of sin in and of itself is an ugly affair, but it's a necessary thing as well. But we thank you also for your, for your mercy, for your grace that is extended to us in this passage and all throughout Scripture as we read countless times in which you have shown your love, your compassion, steadfast love, your kindness toward us when we deserve none of it, when we were in willful rebellion against you. And we thank you that we now have the privilege of, of being called your children for all those who have repented, placed their trust in you, have faith in you, and are no longer enemies of yours, but now your sons and your daughters. And we, as your children, seek after you and, and to know you greater and to serve you in a better way day after day. So teach us how we can do that. Holy Spirit, compel us by the truth of the gospel once again, maybe a new way, a new facet of the gospel that would intrigue us again on just how great, how amazing, and how glorious Jesus is. We thank you, Spirit, for offering us that truth this morning. and Work in our hearts, work in our minds, mold us and make us more like you. And as we respond In worship, help us to remember that you have done it all and you are worthy of our worship now and forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.